you have your Bibles, turn in them to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the inside of your bulletin there. The verses we're going to look at are, are written there with a place to take notes as we walk through this passage today. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then verses 8 through 11. So friends, listen. This is God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is God's word. So these verses, verses 8 through 11, this is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. As Moses is standing on Mount Sinai, coming down with the law of God written on tablets of stone, this is the fourth out of Ten Commands. And God says for us to rest from our work. He tells us that we need to rest from our work. Now, the struggle that we have is that there is so much around us that tells us not to rest. God says rest, but the economy that we live in tells us no. God says that a healthy life, a balanced life, a life that's worth living includes both work and rest. But the economy is like a force, isn't it? There's a culture, there's a spirit in the air that says you don't really need to rest. Um, The message that we get from the economy is this. You need to have more if you want to be happy. You need to own more. You need to use more. You need to eat more if you want to be happy. The economy also says happiness comes from stuff that is better, faster, newer, and has more features. And this is what the economy tells us. And and then while the economy is providing newer, better, faster, with more features kind of stuff, well, it's got to make these things that are newer, better, faster, with more features. And it also needs money so that we can pay for these things that the economy is telling us we have to have, right? And so we sort of get hit from both angles. So on the one hand, the economy says, have more, own more, use more, eat more, better, faster, newer features. But then it also says, in order to get these things, you need to work harder, faster, and longer. Right? You've got to work more. You've got to, you have to produce more. You need to make more money so that you can have these things that are newer, better, faster. Right? And so we get hit with these things. And, and not just hit, but it's not even that we get hit anymore. This is just the air that we breathe. Okay? This is the water that we swim in. Right? There's a story told these two young fish that are swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish who's coming from the other direction who nods to them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish just sort of go by without answering, and after a minute, eventually, one of them looks over at the other and asks, what's water? (laughs) 
Friends, this is the economy's message. This is the message of our economy to us. And we don't even know it. We are living it. We are eating it. We are breathing it. We are buying it. We are working harder, faster, and longer for it. And we don't even know what we're doing. Now, on the other hand, God has a message. He's been teaching us that a vital part of our happiness is an alternative to this, and it's simply rest. God says, if you want to be happy, you need to rest. Now, I want to say as we start, the economy has provided amazing inventions that actually image God's own creativity. Our economy has given jobs and livelihood to billions of people both in our country and increasingly around the world in a way that sometimes images God's desire that all the world would be cared for. And so we're not against the economy, okay? This is part of being city positive, remember? That we both see and celebrate what is good, but we also mourn and want to fix what's wrong, okay? We, and so we see and we celebrate the economy when it images God, when the economy cares for people, but the pressure of the economy also robs us of true rest. Okay? Do you understand that? It robs us of the rest that God wants for us. It's a force that pressures you to ignore God's design that you would get regular, deep, and spiritual rest. Because again, God says rest. The economy says, no, come on. You can keep going. God says, look, this isn't good for you. But the economy says, you're not going to die. Come on, you're not going to die. You need all this stuff. I mean, isn't it pleasing to the eye, after all? Doesn't it make you smarter to have this stuff? Makes you wise? God says rest, and the economy says, you know what? I have an idea. You can rest after the work is done. The economy says, you know what, you can rest after you get that new car, after you get the new phone, after you get the promotion, after you close the deal. I mean, this is what the economy tells us. The economy says this, says actually, you know what, the stuff that you buy will help you to rest. Because you know how that feels when you finally get a new phone? That feeling, yes. And you stare at it. And you caress it, and you start to call it precious. Oh, wait, no, that's another thing. Um, <laughs> the economy says, you know what? You can feel good and rest deeply knowing that you got what you wanted. There was an article published in The New Yorker by a guy named Tim Wu about the downside of convenience technology like the Apple Watch. It says this, our technologies may have made us prosthetic gods. That's interesting. Um, yet they have failed somehow to deliver on the central promise of free time. The problem is that as every individual task becomes easier, we demand much more both of ourselves and of others. And so we're left with a larger volume of small tasks, like hundreds of emails. Right? It's easy to answer them, but there's hundreds of them now. We've become plagued by a tyranny of tiny tasks, individually simple but collectively oppressive. And if you thought it was difficult to come up with a decent excuse for a late response to an email while carrying a smartphone, imagine what will happen when the messages are on your wrist. 
Imagine what will happen when your boss can feel your heartbeat. The expectations will just get worse. And so all of this by way of introduction, I want you to just answer one question. This is in your bulletin. I want you to fill in the blank. Can you see the conflict? Can you see the conflict between the economy that we swim in, that we breed, eat, live in, and God's design that you take Sundays off and make them sacred? Can you see the conflict? I hope you can, because if you can't see this conflict in your life, if you don't feel the tension that we're talking about, then this will probably fall on deaf ears. But if you can touch that frustration, that angst, that, 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 that thing that's inside of you, that, that anger even um, about your life and how it's not what you want it to be, then you have a shot at this message making a difference. Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. And, and really for the rest of the series, for the rest of the series, I want you to embrace a key idea that there are ideas and forces in our culture today that are pressuring you away from God. Okay, you need to know this. You need to be aware of it so that you don't just swallow everything that's around you, hook, line, and sinker. There are lots of things. The economy is what we're going to look at today. Next week, we're going to look at entertainment. And then the next week, our last, series, our last sermon in the series, we're going to look at busyness. Okay? These are things that keep us from regular, deep, spiritual rest. And so the pressure that comes from the economy, it's more than just a conflict. This is number one on your outline. The economy can make us slaves. The economy can make us slaves. This isn't just a problem. It's not just merely annoying, but this can be slavery. Because intentional or not, whether you know it or not, the economy can end up controlling our lives. The economy says the problem is that you need more. You just need more. It never tells you when you have enough, uh, but it always tells you that you need more. And what it's doing, though, is it's enslaving you. It's, it's training you so that you would live your life around stuff. It's convincing you every time um, for you to live for money and what money can buy. Think about it, because when you get what you want, it, it feeds your pride. Right? We like having stuff. We like the latest and the greatest. We like the new thing. We like to have the ability and the convenience. We like to show other people that we have it. Right? I remember when the iPhone first came out, and one of the things that Apple built into the phones was this thing, or maybe it was the carrier, I don't know, but either Apple or the, or the carrier um, put a little tag. You know they have those auto signatures that you can put in and customize? What all, it said, sent from my iPhone. Oh, yeah. You know? And so people would, this would happen. People were like, yeah, hey, you know, I got an iPhone. Right? I want everybody to know about it. It's not good enough that I have it, but I want everyone to know about it, right? This is what social media is all about. Like, my life isn't real anymore until I show you, until somebody else sees what I'm doing and can enjoy and wish they were like me. Right? We're going to talk more about that next week. But yeah, when we get what we want, it feeds our pride. We like other people thinking that we're cool. And I just want to tell you that every time you take a hit on this crack pipe, because that's what it is, it's a crack pipe, you become more and more addicted to things and to your own image. 
and it's slavery. You become enslaved. And that's what happens when we get what we want. So you get what you want and you become enslaved. Well, when you don't get what you want, you become angry. And this anger manifests itself in different ways depending on who we are and what we're like. Look at what James 4 says. James 4, 1 to 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. When Jesus has taught us that, 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 let's see here, I guess that murder is also, the, the, the spirit that produces real murder also produces anger and hatred and lashing out and angry words. And so, again, think about that. Um, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's this desire that's within us, and when that desire is not met, this is a picture, so often, of what we become. And then look, this is not just an understandable weakness. Look what James says. He says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you line yourself up and become friends or bedfellows with the economy, you become an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you don't get what you want, man, this anger frustration. This happens at work, right? We get angry with our employees when our life isn't going right. We get angry with our boss. We begin talking bad about our boss. Um, we get angry with our coworkers. This happens not just in the workplace, but it happens at home, right? Anger towards kids, anger toward your spouse or the person that you're dating. I mean, think about it. There's all kinds of fights over things and you're not even on the other, you're not even on opposite sides, Right? But you're so frustrated that deep down inside there's something that isn't happening for you that you want to have happen. And so you have a short fuse, you're frustrated, and then something that's a little tiny thing that's not a big deal becomes a big deal and all of a sudden you're at war. Have you ever examined your heart? Think about the last time you got really upset with someone else. I mean, was it really what they did? did what they did really deserve the level of your response? Or were you punishing them because there was something in your life that was missing? Sometimes it's anger, other times it's despair. There are things that we think we need to be happy and we don't think we'll ever have them. And that produces cynicism, bitterness, causes us to be the kind of people who can't be happy for others. Still other times, it's an issue of control. That's what it is a lot. We know that we're not in control and that can freak us out. Our financial situation is in the hands of people that we don't trust or that we don't know. And that lack of control causes us to squeeze tighter on the other relationships in our lives. We become demanding. We become unreasonable. And we make other people suffer because we aren't happy. 
And the progression continues because then what happens is not only do we lash out, but then we begin to use people. Um, as we are enslaved to the economy, we begin to treat other people like slaves too. Think about this. Eugene Peterson says, we begin to see others in terms of what they can do for us rather than who they are. You follow that? I mean, we treat people for what they can do for us rather than as human beings. He says that when we do that, we mutilate humanity and we violate community. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, in these places, it's because there's something in our lives that is more important to us than God. There's something that we need to have. There's something that we wish we could have. And getting that is more important to us than God. Sometimes it's the need for more, that newer, better, stronger thing. Um, And that need for more is stronger than our call to love others. Sometimes we don't trust that God is really in control. We don't trust that God is going to care for us. And so we've got to take charge. Sometimes we get to the place where, you know what, people don't matter because, dang it, I need this. So this is what God is speaking into in Exodus chapter 20. This is a people who have been like literally enslaved. Right? Enslaved in Egypt. God gave them this commandment and they still ignored it. At the end of 2 Chronicles, it's it's really fascinating because it ties this directly in with the Sabbath. In, In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, listen to this. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land enjoyed its Sabbath. Okay, all the days that it lay desolate, the land kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And so, um, God gives Israel the promise line. He brings them in, gives them these amazing promises, and calls them to live as His people. Well, this verse in 2 Chronicles 36 says that during the time they were in the promised land, they didn't keep the Sabbath. And so, after being in the land for over 400 years, after patiently waiting and pleading with Israel, God determined that if they were going to act like slaves by never resting, okay, if they were going to act like slaves by never resting and being enslaved to the economy and to their work, that God would finally give them up to become the slaves they were acting like. And so Israel's exile was in part because they refused to stop worshiping the economy and their work and their stuff. And so God sent them into slavery so that they, so that they, so that at least the land would enjoy a rest. And so it's amazing because even the thing that was designed by God to remind Israel of heaven, right? Because that's what it is. 
the Sabbath is designed to give us a sense that, you know what, time isn't just an endless cycle. It's actually going somewhere, right? That God is going to bring us into an eternal rest. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Last week, we saw that the Sabbath design is for us to remember the gospel. That in Jesus, we can rest from our work. We don't have to earn our way into heaven anymore. We can rest in the finished work of Christ. And so even this gift of God that was designed to remind them of heaven and of their rest, they took that rest and they profaned it. And friends, don't we do the same? When we don't take a day and make it sacred, we are profaning this gift that God has given to us. One author said this, once a week, God walks out on the Sabbath bridge to meet us, but most of us are no-shows. We unapologetically stand up the creator of the universe week after week after week. We do it because we're slaves. So it's not just about taking the day off, but it's about remembering who God is in our lives. And there is good news. There is good news. Our next point, not just the economy can make us slaves, but the gospel sets us free. The gospel sets us free. Economy says make more, spend more, get more. The gospel says no more. The gospel says no more. We need God to invade our lives so that we can be freed from this slavery. And that's exactly what he does. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, before God gives the commands, he says this, as God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. And so meaning in life, happiness in life, purpose in life, it begins with knowing God. It begins with knowing the Lord your God. That's where meaning comes from. Real living starts with a relationship with God. It starts with Him. And here's what's great is that it starts with Him coming to us. Right? He doesn't wait for us to figure it out and come to Him. No, no, no. He's right now with you, in your face for some of you, alongside for others of you. And He's saying, don't you remember that I am God? Don't you remember that I created time? Don't you remember that I have a plan for your time? Don't you remember that you have enough time in your life to do my will? I am the Lord your God. Don't ever forget that. Don't think about your schedule. Don't think about your time. Don't think about your to-do list without thinking about me. God says, why would you do that? And so he comes to us and it starts with him. And then look at verse 2. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so for Israel, God is reminding them, I am your God, and I was the one who set you free. God says, remember the Exodus when you listen to my commands. Right? The Exodus was the gospel that brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Friends, for us, for us, the gospel is that Jesus brings us out of slavery. Right? God knows that we're enslaved to the economy. He knows the pressures that we feel. He knows how easily that we are hooked into a love for our money. 
Uh, we, we have a love of money and a love for stuff. We're easily hooked by the pressure that we feel to impress our friends or to live for our career. And Jesus entered into this life. Jesus entered into a life that's not that unlike our own. He entered into this. Jesus was crushed under the weight of an economy. Jesus was crushed under the weight of materialism, of stuff, and of a need that we have to exalt ourselves. Okay, The sins that this message so far is exposing in your heart, these are the sins that Jesus died for. And I want you to see this in John chapter 11, verses 47 to 53. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, Holy cow, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? For this man, this is Jesus, performs many signs. Look at this, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you see this? The commitment to kill Jesus was exactly because of the fear that the Romans would come and take away our place and our nation. The Jewish leaders killed Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their power, to their lifestyle, to the economy, to the way that things operated. It goes on. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas says, I got an answer. Let's kill him. So much better that one man dies instead of us suffering and losing our nation. In verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what we see here, Jesus was crucified. Drilled into his hands, the nails. <laughs> And it was relentless. It didn't stop. It got louder and louder. I mean, seriously, right? Um, Jesus was crucified because people put their place, their power, their nation's well-being ahead of God. They put their nation's well-being ahead of God. If you don't spend this tax rebate, people, our country will die. The economy has profits too. Jesus was crucified because these people put their place, their power, their nation's well-being ahead of God, and he did this. Verse 51 tells us. He did this so that he would die for the nation and for all of those who would believe in him. That's what John's gospel teaches us. And so what I want to say to you today 
is that if you've worshipped at the altar of the economy, if you have joyfully worn the cuffs and the chains of our economy, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died. If you have used other people because you don't have what you want, if you've ever lashed out at someone else, if you have ever treated someone else unfairly because you were afraid of what was going to happen to you, Jesus died for your sins. What I want you to see, can you see him now on the cross dying for your slavery to the economy? Like it wasn't just this generic death on the cross for sins, although it was that. But Jesus was truly dying for the sin of economic slavery and idolatry. Jesus was specifically dying at the hands of people who could not let him live, who lashed out against him in anger and in despair and in lack of control. And he hung there on the cross for you. On the cross, Jesus had no control. He knows what it's like to have no control. And he continued to trust God. Jesus knows what it's like to be empty, to be poor, to have no money. But instead of on the cross getting angry, he offers forgiveness. He shows a love that knows no bounds. He shows a love for you as a sinner who is lost and enslaved. And he offers forgiveness. He says, yes, for you too I am dying. For these sins, even these, I give my life. And Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating to us that if we come to him, our slavery is ended. He rose from the grave to bring us out of slavery. He rose to set us free. And so against the economy, Jesus says, you have everything you need in a relationship with me. You have my approval. You have my love. Jesus both loves you and he likes you. You don't need a new car or a new phone. Jesus says, you just need me. Because if you have me, everything else will take care of itself. So friends, this is the gospel that sets us free. Our last point is that the Sabbath is a rehearsal. The Sabbath rehearses our freedom. Okay? The Sabbath is a rehearsal. In Exodus 20, God says, look, the, the Exodus is the gospel. That's the event that rescues you from freedom or from slavery. So in the Exodus, I set you free from slavery. The commands will keep you from going back into slavery. Okay? That's how it works. The gospel comes to set us free, and then the commands come to keep us free. Make sense? God says, look, I don't want you going back. I mean, it's kind of crazy when stuff got difficult for Israel. Israel was praising God on the other side of the Red Sea. They were rejoicing in God. 
And then they got hungry. And they were like, hey, y'all, let's go back to Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had leeks and onions. We're not even starving, friends. We just want a new phone. I mean, we want a new car. We can't stand the fact that someone else got a promotion and we didn't, so we're going to sacrifice what God wants. We're going to run roughshod over his commands so that we can have what we think we need. Not realizing, or sometimes we even realize and do it anyways because we just don't know what else to do. It's not going to make us happy. So the Sabbath is one of the commands that will keep you from going back into slavery. God says, I want you to live as the free people that you are. I don't want you to be slaves to the economy. And so he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. There's seven things in that list, which is kind of cool. If you're into numbers, which you should be because the Bible's into numbers, whenever there's a list of seven, that's complete. It's basically saying, look, this command is for you and anyone who you employ. Right? This is telling you that you need to stop. Stop working. All work needs to stop. You, your servants, your animals, right? All means of production need to come to an end. You've got to stop the work. You have six days to get it all done, and on the seventh, God says, I want you to stop. I want you to rest. Work for six days. That's a good thing. That's exciting. We're not against work here, right? We spent seven weeks talking about the glory of work. But after that, Follow me and rest. Rest. This fourth commandment, it's a bridge that actually connects heaven and earth together. God rested on the seventh day. He invites us to join him in that rest. Walter Brueggemann has written a book called The Sabbath as Resistance. And it's a great book. It's, it's a real short, it's like 70 pages. And he says this, he says, we may consider the Sabbath as an alternative to the endless demands of economic reality. More specifically, the demands of a market ideology that depend, as Adam Smith has already seen, on the generation of needs and desires that will leave us endlessly restless. The market ideology depends on us being continually inadequate, unfulfilled, and in pursuit of that which may satiate our desire. Oh. The Sabbath is an alternative to that. The Sabbath gives you an opportunity to rehearse the fact that you are not enslaved to the economy. The Sabbath is a divine excuse from God that says, I can, as much as I'm able, unplug from the economy for 24 hours. Right? And it's a rehearsal. It's 
It's a rehearsal, right? To observe the Sabbath is to rehearse something, right? By doing that, by not working, by not employing, by unplugging from the economy and its incessant desire for more and newer and better, you get a chance to declare by your life, I'm not enslaved to this. I'm stepping off of this rat wheel or this hamster wheel. I'm out of the rat race at least one day a week. And during that day, I'm going to rest. I'm going to worship the true God. I'm going to remember that this does not define me. The economy does not define me. I met my new neighbor next door, um, this gal, and she had a shirt on that says, I refuse to be defined entirely by a number. I was like, oh, that's it. I'm preaching on this this Sunday. You should come. (laughs) Um, But friends, Jesus wants you to hear that. Like You are not defined in his eyes by a number. He sees who you are. He sees that you are. He sees your gifts. He sees your strengths. He sees your talents. He sees your weaknesses. He sees your struggles. And he is with you. And he wants you to be increasingly defined by who you are in him. By what he's making you to be. And the Sabbath is a chance for us to rehearse that. We're like actors in a play. Right? The Bible is like the script. And the Sabbath is a chance for us one day every week to act out the fact that we are not enslaved to the economy. That we're going to unplug. Now, what's different is that with actors, you're sort of becoming something that you're kind of not, right? The act is an act. But with the scriptures, with God's commands, this is actually the path that leads to who you truly are. This is true humanity the truest form of human beings, the, 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 the most alive people are people who both work and rest. And so this is an invitation for you. And as you do this, as you worship God so that you don't worship stuff, this will reshape you. Because this one day in seven, if you do it right, if you remember what it's for, And you don't just rest because you want a day off, but you rest to make the day sacred. We talked about how to do that last week. If you do that, then when you step back in on Monday, you're a different person. And your relationship with the economy will begin to change. You will live as free people even in the midst of an economy that wants to enslave you, but can't. And I just want to share with you one verse that reminds me of this in such an amazing way. It's so, this, this warms my heart, and it, man, let me just read it to you. It's Hebrews 10, um, verse 34. It's talking about the life that the Christians lived during the first century, this one group of people that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to. It says this. It says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. 
huh? I just have this image of people in their homes and the Roman police led by the Jewish brigade breaks down the door, breaks into their home and begins looting them. Taking the things, I mean, these were not, this wasn't a rich nation, taking what little they had. And what were they doing? They were joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Maybe they were singing. Maybe they were worshiping. I mean, this is what Paul did. He's in prison being beaten, right? And we catch him in Acts 16. Him and Silas are singing hymns at midnight. They were joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. How in the world could they do this? Well, it says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You knew that you had an inheritance, that God had something in store for you that was so secure that nothing could touch it. That your earthly goods could be stolen. They could be robbed. They could be destroyed. They could, be, they could decay over time. But you have an inheritance that will last forever. You have an abiding inheritance and a sure one that no one can touch. That no one can touch. These people knew that it could be 50 years, but in 50 years, a new life is going to begin and it's going to last forever. And so they said, let goods go. You can take it. Hey, hey, you forgot. You forgot the other car. Here, can I get you the keys for that? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. You know what? There's a laptop that I have upstairs. Can you just hold on a second? Let me make sure that you get my good laptop. That's what they're doing. They're joyfully accepting the plundering of their goods. I mean, every time I read this, every time I think about this, I go, man, I want so much to be like these people. I wish so much that I could hold on to my stuff like this. Not holding on to it at all, right? Having what God gives me, but then just willing to share, willing to be plundered and to take it joyfully. Man, what kind of life would that be? What kind of joy could you have if your life and your happiness didn't depend on your stuff? What kind of life would it be to truly be set free from the economy and the lies that it tells us that this is what's going to make you happy? Man, what could it be to get a ticket because you were speeding and rejoice, right? To have someone steal your stuff, to have someone rip off your phone and go, you know what? Evidently, someone needed it more than me. And God, may you show them in some way that this is an act of extravagant grace and lead them back to you. Right? I mean, sky's the limit. You can go to... And, and how can we become these people? It starts one day in seven with a rehearsal. It starts taking one day off and making it sacred. And unplugging. And just for a day, put down your stuff. Just for a day, don't live for your stuff. Just for a day, don't work for stuff. Rest and rejoice that you have an inheritance that is coming because of your faith in Jesus, not because of anything that you've done. And Jesus today wants you to rest and receive it. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we are thankful to you. Jesus, we're thankful for the fact that you came and rescued us in our slavery. All of us, I think, can confess. I know I'm confessing, Jesus, that I have been enslaved to stuff. There's things that I just hold on to way too hard, way too tight. I don't have the kind of life that someone who's going to inherit the new heavens and new earth ought to have. Jesus, would you forgive us again? Thank you for dying, for being willing to be crushed under the weight of my need for more, under the weight of my fear and my anger. Thank you for dying so that you could set us free. Jesus, help us to rest today. You let go of your life. Can't we let go of one day? We want to give you this day and worship you on this day. Help us, Jesus, to do this. Help us to not do this alone. Jesus, I pray that every person here who wants to take a step in this direction, who wants to begin to rehearse this, Jesus, would you get them together with someone else so that they are observing this day with someone else? Because you've saved us for community. And Jesus, for those who are here and they don't know you, Uh, Would you help them? Would you speak to them? Give them the knowledge that they confess their sins. Help them to see that you've died for them and that you want to set them free. Jesus, let us be a people that are so enthralled, that are so encouraged and so lifted up by the inheritance that we have from you that we would joyfully accept the plundering of our goods. Help us in this for your glory's sake, so that we would live lives that show that you are worth so much more than anything else. Amen.